Father, as we do come now to the ancient words of Scripture, God, we believe and know that they are alive and active, that they are relevant down to this day, and we praise you for that, and we pray now that your words, your holy words, would impart truth to us and knowledge to us, wisdom, light, and life, and salvation. We pray that you would do all this because of Jesus, and we ask in his name, amen. This morning, uh, we're going to begin what will be, Lord willing, a several-week excursion through one of the great how-to chapters in the Bible, uh, namely Romans chapter 12. If you want to turn there now, you can. Uh, Romans 12 uh, is a great, a wonderful passage uh, that teaches us how to live the Christian life. But it's set right in the middle of a larger context, isn't it? Romans chapters 1 through 11 uh, here are like a treasure chest, really, crammed full and spilling over with the precious gems of gospel facts and gospel doctrines. In Romans 11, Paul wants us to really know what we believe and how the gospel of Jesus works and what the good news really is. And so for 11 chapters in this epistle, he holds up before our eyes precious gem after precious gem of gospel detail and salvation doctrine and blood-bought glorious truth. And he is speaking almost entirely of doctrine for 11 chapters. And he calls that series of magnificent doctrines there in chapter 11, verse 33, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. In other words, Paul is saying as he comes to the end of chapter 11, what an open treasure chest of truth the gospel is. But then in chapter 12, he shifts his strategy a bit. And these final five chapters of Paul's letter to the church at Rome are more like a tool chest than they are like a treasure chest. That is to say that after having supplied us with all the jewels of gospel doctrine in chapters 1 through 11, Paul is now going to equip us with the practical instruments we need to put that doctrine on display in our everyday lives. He begins to show us here in chapter 12 how certain character traits and thought patterns and behaviors and commitments actually can function for us like the instruments in a jeweler's toolkit. He shows us how Christian living, like a jeweler's delicate pair of pliers actually enables us to take the gemstones of Christian doctrine and put them on display in our lives. So chapters 12 through 16 are, in a word, instructions for Christian living, instructions for how the doctrines, the truths of the gospel practically work themselves out in the lives of God's people. And the crown of these practical chapters is the first of them as well, Romans 12. And so I just want to take a moment now and read the entire chapter to you before we dive in and begin our study of it. Romans 12, we'll begin in verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. 
For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, or he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now there's a lot there. And as I said, I hope to spend several weeks unpacking this tool chest together with you. And so this morning, by way of introduction, I just want to speak about the entirety of the chapter to give you some observations about this chapter as a whole, four of them actually. The first is simply this, that Romans 12 is a famous chapter. It's a famous chapter. There are several famous sentences to be found here in these verses. For instance, though you may not have remembered where the verse came from, Many of you know the fact that you ought to rejoice with those who rejoice, verse 15, and weep with those who weep. That's a famous verse. Some others of you perhaps have memorized that great maxim there in the final verse of the chapter, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then verse 1 is perhaps the most famous of all of Romans 12's verses. Present your bodies a living and holy Sacrifice. That's a verse I well remember hearing and learning in Sunday school as a little boy. Perhaps some of you remember it as well. The teacher would read to you this verse, and then she would conjure up the image of young Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, willingly climbing up onto the altar alive in order to give himself as a living sacrifice, in order to give himself wholly to God. And then the application of that would always be rightly, that's what we should do. We should be willing not only to die for Jesus physically if it comes to that, but to daily die to ourselves and to our personal ambitions and agendas. That we should be willing to give our all to Jesus. That we should be willing to climb up on the altar of self-denial, as it were, and present our whole selves, body and soul, to Jesus. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, Paul says. It's a famous verse. And then he goes on in the remainder of the chapter and in the remainder of the book, really, to explain how we might go about doing that. So many of us have learned those words by heart and others in this chapter as well. As I said, even if we have forgotten where they were located, they come from here in Romans 12. 
And so I say just simply, first of all, that this is a famous chapter. Some of you will recognize the things that are in it. But then secondly, also briefly, let me just say that this is a simple chapter. This is a simple chapter. As we study it together, we will see that it's not complex at all, really. Now, it doesn't seem that way perhaps at first. When we first read Romans 12, it may seem like it's just a a rather long and random list of various and sundry Christian rules and regulations. It may have seemed, as we read it, like just a mishmash of all sorts of biblical ethics, sort of pieced together, stream of consciousness, just as various different things popped into Paul's mind, particularly beginning in verse 9, where we have this staccato list of one practical one-liner after another, right? Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, and so on. He just keeps giving us one thing after another. It seems like he's just strung together a bunch of random ethical statements, And so it may seem like it would be rather difficult for us to take this chapter with all that's here and boil it down into a simple one-sentence summary. seems like this is sort of a long and winding road through all sorts of different turns. But actually what I want to show you right now is that this chapter is not as long and winding as it may seem. It's not as complex. It doesn't go in as many different directions as it may sound. It's actually a very simple, not a a long and winding road, but just a simple two-lane street. Paul is really just trying to take our minds down two main tracks here in Romans 12. He really just wants to say two things to us. And if we can understand those two things, we understand the chapter. And we can understand them both if we simply understand verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, as we already noted, Paul wants us to present our bodies to the Lord. And then in verse 2, he wants us to renew our minds in the Lord. Just those two things, really. Present your body to God and renew your mind in his truth. That's a one-sentence summary of Romans 12. Present your body to the Lord and renew your mind in his truth. Everything else that Paul is going to say in verses 3 through 21 generally falls under one of those two categories. For instance, in verses 3 through 5, we are encouraged not to think more highly of ourselves than is warranted. Not to think more highly of ourselves than is warranted. That's an extension of Paul's instruction to renew our minds. Don't think this way. Same thing in verse 16, where he encourages us to be of the same mind toward one another and not to be haughty in mind. So do you see? These are extensions of what he's already said in verse 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then on the other hand, there are verses that are extensions and outflows of Paul's command to offer up our bodies in service to the Lord. For instance, the instructions about spiritual gifts there in verses 6 through 8. How are we going to serve? How are we going to give? And so on. That fits into how are we going to use our bodies for the Lord? So would verse 13 be, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. That's an extension of offering up your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And we could go on through the chapter dividing Paul's sundry instructions into those two broad categories. Present your bodies to the Lord, renew your minds in his truth. That's the basic structure that we have in this passage. And really, that's the basic structure for Christian growth in general. How do you grow as a Christian? How do you become more like Jesus? 
Well, there are a hundred practical tips and pointers that we could give one another and places that we could go in the Bible to try to answer that question. But all those things would basically fall one way or another under these two Romans 12 categories. Christian sanctification, growth into the image of Jesus, is really a process by God's grace of bringing your mind and your body under the lordship of Christ. Your mind renewed in his word, your body offered up in his service. That's Christian growth. Now, of course, and obviously, our emotions and our wills will have a vital place in that process as well. But both of those faculties, the emotion and the will, are so strongly affected by what our mind believes that the reality is if our minds are really made new, if our minds can be trained to think rightly and to embrace what is true, then our feelings will follow and our willpower will follow as well. And then, of course, so will our body. So the Christian life is really a process of renewing your mind so that as your beliefs work themselves out through your emotions and your will, you will willingly present your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Your mind and your body are so important. And that's what Paul is on about in this chapter. As many different one-liners as he seems to string together here in this chapter, it's really straightforward. Present your body to Christ and renew your mind in his truth. Do rightly because you think rightly. If you think rightly, you'll be transformed and you will do rightly. Your body and your mind. Those are, if you will, the two prongs of the jeweler's pliers that allow you to take the gemstones of gospel doctrine, the beauty of the gospel, and put it into practice, put it on display in your life. The mind and the body, take the gospel and put it on display in your life. So Romans 12, then, is really a simple chapter, just two things that Paul has in mind. But now, thirdly, uh, let me say and take a little more time to say that it's an urgent chapter. It's an urgent chapter. We might think that the really urgent part of the book of Romans might be chapter 1, where Paul describes the danger of hell and God's recompense for sin. Or perhaps if someone said, where is the urgent portion of the book of Romans? We might turn to Romans 8, where Paul gives instructions about suffering well and dying well. And we might say that is the truly urgent portion of the book for Christians. We need to be able to suffer well and die well. And of course, those things that I've just mentioned are extremely urgent. Making sure that we escape God's wrath and then making sure that we finish well, that we die well, that's extremely urgent. But then we might come to Romans 12 with its instructions about spiritual gifts and hospitality and Christian love and so on. And we might say to ourselves, well, I mean, this is important stuff. This is wonderful stuff. But it's surely not as critical. It's not as burning a need as understanding the dangers of hell. No, no, we might say these are, these are the kinds of things that we settle down to doing once all the really urgent, once all the pressing matters of Christianity have been settled. These aren't the urgent things themselves. And while it may be true that escaping from hell might be a, a bit more of a critical subject than Christian hospitality, I want you to notice that Paul still considered his instructions in Romans 12 to be of urgent importance. They may not be the most urgent thing in the Christian life, but they are urgent for the Apostle Paul. These things are things that we must do. Because you'll notice that he doesn't preface 
Romans 12. He doesn't preface this practical section of his book by calling it some suggestions for Christian living. Nor does he merely say in verse 1, I want you, brethren, to take up these various practical applications. He doesn't even say, I command you to do these things there in verse 1. What he says is actually stronger than that. What Paul actually says in verse 1 about these various ways of presenting our bodies to the Lord and renewing our minds in his truth is this. I urge you, brethren, to do these things. I plead with you to do them, in other words. I beg you to take the Christian walk seriously. It's urgent, he says, that you do this. I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you to walk with the Lord, to transform yourselves by the renewing of your minds and the offering up of your body as a sacrifice. It's urgent. In other words, what he is saying is that it's not simply enough for us to call ourselves Christians. It's urgent that we not merely take the name of Jesus upon ourselves, but that we actually begin to be conformed into his image. That is urgent for Paul. It's urgent that we not merely know the doctrines in chapters 1 through 11, but that those doctrines actually begin to generate the changes that he speaks about in chapters 12 through 16. Practical Christian living, Paul says, is urgent. It's vital. And the question is, why is it so? Why is Paul so so wound up about Christian behavior that we would actually live out our faith. Why is this urgent? Well, let me give you two reasons why it is from elsewhere in Paul's epistles. For one thing, it is urgent for our own soul's sake. Us living Christianly is urgent for the sakes of our own souls. Now here I'll just call your attention to what Paul said back in chapter 8 of this same letter, verses 29 and 30. In that famous string of gospel doctrines that he lays down there, what Paul tells us is that God has predestined every last truly saved person to, quote, become conformed to the image of his son. In other words, if you are justified, if you are a Christian, God has predestined you to become like Jesus. It will happen. That's the way salvation works. To put it another way, no one is ever saved from sin's penalty without also, over the course of a lifetime, continually being saved from sin's power. No one is forgiven sins without also being made a new person, however slow and painful that process may be. Every Christian slowly, gradually begins to live like it. That's what Paul teaches in Romans 8. We will be conformed to the image of God's Son. And therefore, it is urgent that we present our bodies to the Lord and that we renew our minds in his truth. Because if we don't, if we don't do Romans 12, if these things never begin to happen, if we don't begin to love like Paul speaks of in this chapter and don't begin to think rightly and humbly about ourselves like Paul speaks of in this chapter, if we don't serve the way he describes in verses 6 through 8, then we have a large question mark over our souls because we're not becoming like Jesus. In other words, if we don't gradually become more like Jesus, according to Romans 8, we have to wonder if we've ever been saved by Jesus. That's Romans 8, but that makes Romans 12 so important. This whole bit about Christian behavior and love and so on, all these qualities that Paul lays out here in this chapter truly are urgent for us. Paul is not overstating things when he says, I urge you, 
to present your bodies and to renew your minds. I plead with you to walk the walk. That is not just a rhetorical flourish. That is the language of life and death. If your body and your mind are not changing more and more into the image of Jesus, then you may not actually be his. So this is an urgent chapter for the sake of our own souls and our assurance of salvation. It's urgent that we not rest on our laurels, but that we grow and demonstrate that the Spirit really is at work in our lives. And it's urgent that we do that, not merely for our own sakes, but also, secondly, for the sake of the watching world. This is an urgent chapter, and it's urgent that we put it into practice for the sake of the watching world. How so? Well, again, we go to something else Paul said, namely Titus 2.10. Titus 2.10 is an amazing statement by the Apostle Paul. Here's what he says. Paul claims in Titus 2.10 that we can, by our behavior, actually, quote, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We can, by our behavior, adorn, make more beautiful, decorate the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, we should read that and go, what? We can decorate, we can make more beautiful the doctrine of God our Savior? How can we adorn the doctrine of the gospel, which is already incomparably beautiful? How can we possibly make the unsurpassed loveliness of the good news of Jesus any more lovely? How can we make this any more attractive than it already is? Well, the answer is we take the incomparably, unsurpassingly beautiful doctrine of Jesus and we beautify it the same way that we beautify diamonds that are already perfectly cut. You don't beautify a perfectly cut diamond by adding anything to it, right? You beautify a perfectly cut diamond by putting it on your finger, by putting it on elegant and prominent display. Isn't that right? A diamond is only seen as beautiful when it's on display, when you can see it. And so it is with the gospel. We don't make the gospel more beautiful in and of itself, but we make it more beautiful by taking it off the shelf and putting it on display in our lives. And how do we put the doctrine of the gospel, how do we put the good news of Jesus on display in our lives? Well, one way is by preaching it and sharing it verbally, of course. But the other way that we display the beauty of the gospel of Jesus is by taking the toolkit of Romans 12 and passages like it and showcasing the gospel in our own practical actions and behaviors. Showing people how the gospel has changed us. We adorn the doctrine of the gospel. We make the good news even more attractive by placing it in the filigree settings and golden sockets of our own love and service and hospitality and humility and so on. That's what often attracts people to listen to the gospel, isn't it? That's what makes people want to hear the news that we share. They see that it makes a difference in our lives. What makes people notice the jewels of the gospel is when they are on fine display in the lives of someone they know. No one will ever realize the beauty of your diamond engagement ring, ladies, and what it says about your husband or your fiancé unless you have the ring on your finger. And few people, by the same token, will ever recognize the splendor of the gospel and the love of the one who gave it to us unless we allow that gospel to sparkle on our hands and feet and in our bodies 
and minds. And Romans 12 is all about how we might do that. And so Paul considers this urgent because what he's saying is in, in Titus 2, people will either be wooed toward heaven or repelled toward hell by what they see us doing with our bodies and our minds. So I urge you, he says now in Romans 12, I plead with you to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, to be transformed by the renewing of your minds because it is of life and death importance for you and your own assurance and for the people around you and their own soul's safety. This is an urgent chapter. So it's a famous chapter. It's really a simple chapter, but it's an urgent chapter. And finally, critically, Romans 12 is a contingent chapter. A contingent chapter. And this is the main thing that I want to point out this morning. This chapter does not stand alone. This chapter should not be read and cannot properly be understood in a vacuum. Indeed, if the Apostle Paul were here this morning, he might call it crazy to attempt to do what I'm going to attempt to do over the next few weeks, namely to pick up studying the book of Romans beginning here in chapter 12 without first having studied the first 11 chapters. We'll see if we can remedy that. But he might say that because Romans 12 will not work without Romans 1 through 11. Romans 12 will not work like Rome, without Romans 1 through 11. Just like in a jeweler's shop, the tool chest is useless unless he also has the treasure chest. Romans 12 will not work without Romans 1 through 11. How do I know that? Well, you'll notice that this chapter begins all importantly with the word therefore. Therefore, meaning that everything that Paul is about to say is contingent upon everything he just finished saying. The word therefore here in this chapter is like the mortar between two bricks. If you try to stack the second brick on top of the first brick and you don't put any mortar in between, the second brick will eventually fall to the ground and will become useless. And that is obviously the case with Romans 12. That's what he's trying to tell us. If we try to take the application of Romans 12 and put it in the walls of our lives without it being cemented to the doctrine of Romans 1 through 11, it'll fall to the ground. In other words, if we try to do the Christian life without building it on the foundation of Christian doctrine, our Christian life will ultimately fail. The brick may seem to hold its own for a while, but eventually it will dislodge, and eventually the whole building will collapse in on itself. That's the significance of the word therefore at the beginning of verse 1. You cannot do the Christian life in Romans 12 without the Christian doctrine in Romans 1 through 11. You cannot take a diamond ring, or you cannot make, I should say, a diamond ring if there's nothing in your treasure chest. You have to have the diamonds in order to put them on display. So no matter how familiar you make yourself with the jeweler's pliers and his tiny little screwdrivers and everything else in his toolkit, you can't make jewelry without jewels, and you can't make practical Christianity without the doctrines of Christ. And so he gives us the practical doctrines or practical applications, but he prefaces it with, therefore, everything I've just said, in other words, is so important. That's why you can do chapter 12. Romans 12 is contingent upon Romans 1 through 11. And that means that before we really dive into the content of this chapter in the weeks ahead, we need to consider a couple of questions that spring from this word, therefore, that's mortared in between the doctrine of 1 through 11 and the practice of chapter 12 and following. 
Two questions that spring from the word therefore. The first is very simply, what do we find in Romans 1 through 11? What does the therefore here in verse 1 point back to? What do Romans 1 through 11 teach? What are the doctrines of the Christian faith that form the foundations for Christian living? Let's just review the doctrines. Review Romans 1 through 11 quickly. In Romans 1, we're told that mankind is a big problem. The wrath of God is against him, verse 18. Why? Because even though man's conscience and God's creation reveal to us that there is a God who made us and who cares for us and to whom we're accountable, we've chosen to ignore him, verses 19 through 21. We've gone our own way. And our lives, he says, at the end of that chapter are filled with all sorts of ugly evidences of this fact. Greed, lust, deceit, disobedience to parents, pride, spiritual ignorance, and so on. Mankind has a problem. And Romans 2 goes on to tell us that these things are indeed true of us no matter how religious we may be. In fact, Romans 2 seems to indicate that the more religious we are, the more guilty we are. Because if we have the Bible in our hands and still disobey God's laws, then it's even worse than merely ignoring the things that God's put in our conscience. And according to Romans 3, every single person in the world is guilty, religious and non-religious alike. Verse 10, there is none who does good. There is not even one. Bleak news, right? doesn't seem yet like anything that we would be able to build a life of faith upon. But at the end of chapter 3 is a glimmer of hope. Not just a glimmer, but a sunbeam of hope. Yes, by nature, no one is right with God, we're told in chapter 3, verse 10. But, says Paul in verse 21, there is a way to be right with God, even if we have broken his law. There is a redemption plan in place for sinners through a man, verse 25, called Christ Jesus, God's Son. And we're told that this Jesus shed his blood so that our sins might be propitiated. In other words, so that the wrath of God that Paul spoke about in chapter 1 might be appeased because it has been poured out upon the Savior. Jesus died so that God's wrath might be absorbed in him and we wouldn't have to face it ourselves. But how do we get in on that redemption plan? How do we get in on this forgiveness and this right relationship with God? Well, according to chapter 4, the answer is by faith. By faith. We don't have to work our way back to God or or earnest favor by dotting all of our religious I's and crossing all of our T's. Rather, we need only to trust that Jesus has done already all that needed to be done for our forgiveness and our redemption. We are saved from our sins by faith and not as a result of what we ourselves can do. And in chapter 5, that's reinforced. We read it already, that God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to earn our salvation, to die in our place while we were still sinners, verse 8. So God's love for us, God's desire to redeem us, is not based on how well we've done because God sent Jesus to die for us while we were still rotten castaways. And not only did Jesus die for us, but he rose from the dead, chapter 6. And because he did, we're told that we too have the capacity, verse 4, chapter 6, to walk in newness of life life here and beyond the grave. God has sent the spirit of Jesus to live in our hearts, chapter 8, so that we might have the strength to walk in this new life. So that, chapter 8, verse 4, the requirement of God's law might actually be fulfilled in us. 
Isn't that amazing? We read by nature we can't walk with God. By nature the requirement of God's law cannot be fulfilled in us. By nature we're under God's wrath. We can't do it. But because Jesus died for our sin and because he lives again and because his spirit has come to live in those who believe, chapter 8, everything has changed. Everything has changed. Therefore, chapter 12, verse 1, walk in newness of life. Therefore, fulfill God's laws. Therefore, present your bodies to him. Therefore, renew your minds in his truth. Therefore, become all that God intends you to be, loving one another and serving the Lord and using your spiritual gifts and forgiving your enemies and so on. Do you see the connection between 1 through 11 and the therefore in chapter 12? The reason why Paul expects that we will be able to fulfill Romans 12 is because of the therefore that points us back to what he has done for us in chapters 1 through 11. Romans 12 behavior blossoms up in our lives dependent upon Romans 1 through 11 doctrine and transformation having taken root in our souls. Romans 12 is contingent upon Romans 1 through 11, and that brings us to a second question. We've asked, what does Romans 1 through 11 teach? And now the question is, in what ways exactly is Romans 12 contingent upon Romans 1 through 11? In what ways does Romans 12 hinge upon all the good news that's gone before? What causes Romans 12 behavior to blossom out of Romans 1 through 11 doctrine? How does this contingency function? And there are two ways that we'll discuss and then we'll be finished. The first is by way of ability. Romans 12 is contingent upon Romans 1 through 11 by way of ability. Only those who have experienced Romans 1 through 11 have the ability to live out Romans 12. And we see this not only because of the word therefore, but also because of the word brethren still in chapter 12, verse 1. Who is Paul talking to in chapter 12? Who are these instructions for? Who does he expect will be able to do the things that he says should be done? Not just anyone. No, what Paul is doing is he's urging this lifestyle. He is expecting people to be able to obey this. He is asking people to do this who are, quote, brethren, brothers, i.e. Christians. That's what he's saying. Therefore, Christians brothers and sisters in Christ, you're the ones who can do this stuff. In other words, the only people who can live out Romans 12 are the people who've experienced Romans 1 through 11, the Christians. The only people who can present their bodies and renew their minds, as Paul urges, are the people who've really come to Christ, who have done Romans 1 through 11 in real time, the people who have recognized the depth and guilt of their sins in Romans 1 through 3, the people who've seen that Christ's blood is the only remedy for it chapter 3. The people who understand in chapters 4 and 5 that their works count for nothing and that Christ died for them while they were still sinners and that they must simply receive God's redemption plan by faith. And those same people are the ones who having received Christ are enabled by him to walk in newness of life, chapter 6, and who are enabled, chapter 8, by the spirit of Jesus now living in them to fulfill, however imperfectly, to fulfill the requirements of God's law. People who have walked through all these steps, recognition of and repentance for sin, faith in Jesus alone for salvation, and new life by the Spirit, these are the Christians. These are the brethren. And it's these and only these that Paul is speaking to here in Romans 12. It's only the Christians that Paul expects will be able to do what he is asking. 
And so what he's saying with the word therefore and the word brethren is this. All of these marvelous things have happened to you, brothers and sisters. God has saved you from sin's penalty. He saved you from sin's power. And now you have the ability to walk with God. Therefore, I urge you to do it. Therefore, I urge you to walk in this newness of life that Jesus has given you. Therefore, I urge you to present your bodies and renew your minds in God. Chapter 12 is contingent upon all that has gone before then in that it is only when we've truly experientially personally walked through Romans 1 through 11 that we're capable of doing anything lasting with chapter 12. It's only if we're among the brethren that we can begin to behave like them. And so if you've been trying and trying and feeling like you're banging your head against the wall, attempting to live out the Christian life, and it all seems to you as dry as a bone or as lackluster as a pendant with no diamond in it, the problem may not be that you aren't trying hard enough. The problem may not be that you don't understand passages like Romans 12 well enough. The problem may be that you can't do Romans 12 because you've never experienced Romans 1 through 11. You've never really come to faith in the Son of God. And therefore, you've never been enabled by him to walk in newness of life that Romans 12 requires. Simply put, if you find it impossible to live like a Christian, perhaps the solution is that you need to first become a Christian. And if that's you, I just urge you to flee to Jesus this morning, to run to him and to say to him, I don't know exactly how you make all these things happen, but you promise that those who come to you are not only forgiven, but they're given new life and they're enabled to walk in it. And I plead with you to do this in me. Run to him, run to Christ so that you can be saved by Christ and then begin to live for Christ. That's one way that Romans 12 is contingent upon all the truth that comes before it. The good news of Romans 1 through 11 gives us the ability to make application of Romans 12. But then let's also say before we conclude that the good news of Romans 1 through 11 not only gives us the ability to make application of Romans 12, but it also gives us the motivation to make application of Romans 12. Motivation, that's what Paul is providing, I believe, when he urges us, still in verse 1, to do the Christian life by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. He's saying, I'm urging this life upon you by the mercies of God. I'm calling the goodness, the mercy of God as my witness as I urge you to run the Christian race. I'm calling God's mercies as my witness to tell you you have every reason why you should want to do this. Think about, he's saying, how good and kind God has been to you in the gospel. And in light of that, he's saying, surely you will be not only able to walk the walk, but you'll want to do it. Surely when you consider how good God has been to you in Jesus, you will desire to serve him. You'll desire to love his people. You'll desire to use his gifts that he's given you for his praise. And so he says, I urge you by the mercies of God, let the mercies of God, the goodness of God to you, motivate you to serve him. Let the goodness of God stimulate you to walk in his ways. And where do we read about this stimulating, motivating mercy of God? Where do we learn of the goodness of God that Paul is speaking of here in chapter 12, verse 1? Where do we go to be bowled over again and again by how kind God has been to us? Well, most especially we go to the good news of Jesus, and that news has just been given 11 chapters worth of print in expounding, hasn't it? 
The gospel of Jesus, as we find it in Romans 1 through 11, and so many other passages as well, is the treasure chest in which the mercies of God are stored. And so Paul is saying, go back and look in the treasure chest. See how rich God has made you. See how much he's done for you. And that will urge you to walk with God. Based on how good God has been, he says, therefore, I urge you to walk with God. I urge you to love one another. I urge you to love your enemies and help the poor and so on. Consider all the mercies I've been unpacking, he says, for 11 chapters. And therefore, on that basis, the goodness of God, motivated by all of his forgiveness and patience and forbearance towards you motivated and spurred on by the amazing love of God who would give his only son for you while you were still mired in your sin. Go now and serve him with all your body and all of your mind. That's what Paul is getting at here in Romans 12. And that's the key to really living like a Christian. Experiencing the good news of Jesus and the mercies of God for yourself so that you're able to walk with and obey God. And then going on every day of your life and basking in the good news of God and the mercies of Jesus so that you'll be motivated to walk with God and obey him too. That's Romans 12, 1. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. I pray that God will give us help to believe it and to bask in it and to do it.